crazy what God is doing. Think about it. People are trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior and going to heaven when they had no hope of it before. Christians are plugging in to the ministry of God right here in the cornfield. Christians are getting mission-minded both here in our community and all over the world. But can I tell you, there are greater things coming. There are greater things to come, and that's the reason why we have to continue in this work that God has begun in us. That's why we have to continue to grow. But let me ask you this. What is a great church anyway? What is a great church? Some people think a great church is a big church. I've been to some big churches in my life. Other people think, you know what? A great church is a small church. And I've been to some small churches in my day. But I wonder about those people who want to stay small. That don't really make a lot of sense to me because I think about those people that want to stay small and I think to myself, well, do they not want more people to come into a relationship with God? Do people who want to stay small do they want people to be eternally separated from God? Do people who want to stay small, they just want to see people saved, but then they need to go somewhere else to worship? Thinking small is not a very wise thing to do. Because think about it. When you get to heaven, you're going to discover that you're worshiping God with millions of believers. That ain't small. <laughs> But you know, not only do some people like a big church and some people like a small church, some people like a country church. We a country church, ain't we? Say, yeah, we are. Some people like a city church. Well, I've been in both. And as long as God is the focus and as long as Jesus is being worshipped, why, well, I'm pretty satisfied. But I do prefer a country church. I remember years back, Jeff Foxworthy started making his killing, teaching and, or talking about a little series called You Might Be a Redneck If. Y'all remember that? Well, this morning I want to share with you, you might be a country church if. You might be a country church if the call to worship is, y'all come on in. Amen. You might be a country church if the preacher says, I want Leroy to pray and five people stand up. Amen. You might be in a country church if never in its 100-year history has the pastor had to buy meat, eggs, or vegetables. Amen. You might be in a country church if there's dried tobacco juice going down each side of the church van. Amen. You might be in a country church if the church directory don't have last names. You know, it's Bubba and Amanda and them. <laughs> you might be in a country church if the only time people lock their cars is during the summer and that's to keep people from putting another bag of maters in their car. Amen. You might be in a country church 
if when the pastor's preaching on how Jesus fed the 5,000, people like Kevin are scratching their head and they're wondering, was that a large mouth, a small mouth, or a catfish? <laughs> Amen, brother? Amen. I just want to tell you, friend, we serve in a great church. And in my study this week, as I was studying about some of the very first churches, man, they were great churches. Now, I don't know if they was a country church or a city church, and it didn't much matter. They were a great church. And these churches serve as a great God-given example to you and I on how we should do it great. These folks, man, they got in touch with heaven. They received their marching orders, and they used the power God gave them to bless him and serve him with all their might. These people and these churches were living their lives built on Christ. And as you know, that's what we've been studying for the last 10 weeks. I know y'all are tired of hearing it. But you know what? We need to know that as individuals and as a church, we need to build our lives on Christ. And 2 Peter, the Bible tells us, how to go about doing that. He said, we begin by adding practices, adding lifestyles. He said, first, you got to add something to your salvation by faith in Christ alone. He said, they believed in separation, being in the world, but not of the, amen, of the world. They believed that it was important to be morally excellent before God. They believed in sanctification, being set apart by the word of God, that this was their roadmap for marriage, their roadmap for family, the roadmap for church. They set themselves apart in sanctification. But they also believed in service. They were going to give up of themselves and give God control of their life in service to him. They persevered in suffering because they believed that you can't have a testimony without a, without a test. They also believed in submission to the Holy Spirit of God. They wanted to add godliness to their lives, and they knew the only way to do that was to yield their lives to God, the Holy Spirit. Finally, they shared brotherly kindness in ministry, in their marriage, and with their money. And that led them to be spiritually mature as they loved God and loved other people with that sacrificial, unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Today, I want to share with you about one of those churches in Acts chapter 11. That's on page 977 in the Bibles in front of you. If you want to go there in Acts chapter 11, let's read a little bit about one of these great, great churches. In verse 19 of Acts chapter 11, Luke writes in the book of Acts, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, that is the non-Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out a man named Barnabas. Sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God, Barnabas was glad and he encouraged them, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he, Barnabas, was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, who would later be known as Paul. And when he had found him, he brought Paul to Antioch, and so it was for a whole year they assembled with that church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians there at the church at Antioch. Today, you and I are here to acknowledge that we need some show enough Christians. Amen? Now, I couldn't say that in the city church because they wouldn't know what I was talking about. But we need some show enough Christians who will stand up and be used by God to build a mighty church for His glory. That's our high calling. So today I want to share with you seven things that made this early New Testament church one of the greatest that the world has ever known. But here's the important part. We also want to see how Bethel Baptist stacks up. So as I go through these seven things, I want you to see if we're doing the same things here at Bethel Baptist some 2,000 years later. Number one, this early New Testament church in Antioch had great purpose. Their purpose was encompassed in one phrase. And that one phrase was this, obey the Savior. Obey the Savior. Because you see, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, the disciples were assembled together in verse 4, and Jesus commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they were commanded to wait. They had to sit tight. They had to be obedient. God, Jesus had something that he was up to. And so Jesus gave his disciples that important message. See, obedience is vital. Obedience to the Lord is absolutely imperative in order to receive the power of God and the blessings of God in your life. Someone once said, ours is not to reason why, ours is but to do or die. So whatever you have to do, obey the Savior. You see, it's through their obedience, their, their waiting, 
that they obtained the promise, the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus told them, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So they were waiting uh, in obedience to Jesus for that promise. Their purpose was this, to share the life-giving gospel good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible says they were to be witnesses. Jesus even said, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then in Peter's famous sermon in Acts 2, Peter stood before the great crowds right there in the streets of Jerusalem and he witnessed the people from all kinds of countries that he'd come into for the feast. His sermon was simple and his purpose was plain. Let me tell you something. Bethel Baptist Church has the same purpose as that early New Testament church. And that purpose is this. It's our high calling to help people get to heaven. Amen? You don't have any other higher calling on your life than to help lost people get to heaven. It starts with your family, and it goes out in ever-increasing circles. Are you helping somebody get to heaven today? That's your purpose. But this early New Testament church also had great prayer. They had great prayer. Later in Acts chapter 12, we discover that Peter is in jail. He's been thrown in the clink. He's in prison. Why is he in prison? He's in prison for doing what he was told to do. Witness. Tell people about Christ. Helping other people get to heaven. He was preaching the good gospel, good news of Jesus Christ. But he wasn't able to do it all by himself. No, it took an army, it took a village to help uh, him fulfill his calling. There in Acts chapter 12, the Bible says in verse 1, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, to persecute the church. Then he killed James. This is one of the apostles of Christ. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had had him arrested, he put him in prison, and he delivered him, get this, to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after the Passover. Four squads of soldiers for one dude. Does that make any sense to you? Four squads of soldiers for one preacher? I mean, we toughen all, but we ain't that tough. Amen? And so, in verse 5, we learn that Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. The church people that he had spent all this time with was offering constant prayers to God for Peter. Now I want you to hear the rest of the story. Check out verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel. 
An angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. And he raised him up, and he said, Arise quickly. And Peter's chains fell off of his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself, get your clothes on, boy, and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. And when he went out and followed him, and he did not know that what was done by the angel was real or not, but he thought he might be seeing a vision. But when they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which was opened before him on its own accord. And then they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Friend, listen carefully. You might not be as nimble as you once were. You may not feel like you're a good teacher. You may not have all the resources or all the money that you feel like you need. But let me tell you something you do have. You, like every other believer with you, have access to the very throne room of God where there you are able to petition God to use, guide, strengthen, protect, and impart wisdom to those people that God is using to reach, preach, and teach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, don't you ever underestimate the power of prayer. You have been gifted with that blessing. Now, not only had they been given a great purpose, and not only had they been given great prayer, but they also had great preaching. Now, brothers and sisters, if you didn't know it, you ain't got the greatest preacher. You don't have the most educated pastor. You don't have the most gifted leader. But let me tell you what you do have. You have an ordinary man who loves you more than you could imagine and desires that you have an intimate relationship with God that will lead you into a life that brings him honor. Peter, he was an ordinary man. In fact, it's been said that Peter wasn't really that good a preacher. But, the content of his sermons, now that was good preaching. Peter's preaching exalted a great Savior. It encouraged great servants, and it also exposed great sin. And get this, y'all. The people responded to that preaching because he was talking about a great Savior, encouraging great servants like you and exposing the great sin in their life, and people were responding to it. Think of it. 3,000 people responded one day, and it wasn't longer than that that 5,000 more people responded to that preaching. I don't know about you, but that must have been some really great preaching. Amen? But let me tell you something else they had. They not only had great purpose, and they not only had great prayer and great preaching, but they also had great power. 
great power. See, the power that came at Pentecost, that is the power that came when the Holy Spirit of God rested upon those believers, is the same power that, was, that came into creation. It's the same power that spoke the universe into being. It's the same power that parted the Red Sea. It's the same power that kept Daniel safe in the lion's den. It's the same power that rescued those three Hebrew boys in that fiery furnace. It's the same power, friend, that turned water into wine and healed multitudes and fed 5,000 and gave sight to the blind and raised Lazarus from the dead. It's the same power. And guess what? You got that power. That same power, we have it available to us. But that power depends on a couple things. That power depends on a couple things. First of all, that power depends on a clean life. God is not going to fill up a dirty vessel with his righteous Holy Spirit. Are you getting me? We must be cleansed of sin, emptied of self, and made available for him to use. But not only does it depend on a clean life, it also depends on consistent walk. Friend, this fly-by-night, blow-hot, blow-cold, in-and-out kind of Christianity will never, ever, ever know the power of God. It takes a consistent walk. But this power, this great power, also depends upon a continual asking. Great power requires great prayer. And I shared with my life group this morning that the, the area that I'm tempted the worst, perhaps, is to neglect my prayer life. To not spend time in, in close, intimate prayer with my father like I should. I want to ask you to pray for me in that. Amen? I want you to, to pray for your church. I want you to pray for every member in this building. Pray, pray, pray. You remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 11? He said, I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone, say everyone. Everyone, friend, who asks to receive. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open to him. He wants us to commune, to converse, to communicate. You can't love somebody and not communicate with them, can you? No. He wants us to communicate with the Father. Because he knows that if we try to do things in our own feeble human strength, we're going to fail. But you do something in the mighty power of God, you're going to get the job done, amen? That's what he wants. Great power comes through great prayer. But listen, you also have got to be willing to put feet to your prayers. I would encourage you not to pray for something that you don't want to be used by God to bring to fruition. Oftentimes, you're the very one that God wants to use to answer your prayers. You know, I used to pray, God, use me. Use me. But now my prayers have changed a little bit. Now I pray, God, make me usable. 
make me usable because I know that God is only going to put his hand into a clean glove. Amen? He's going to use me when I am usable, cleansed of sin and empty of self and available for his use. Here at Bethel, friend, we have found that God infuses his power into people who have a willing heart, who have wise heads and clean, consistent, working hands. They're willing to be used by the hand of God. Friend, I pray that you can say that God is infusing his power in you and using you for his great glory. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Amen. Friend, he had, they had great, great power. Now for the bad news, because they also had great persecution. We Christians don't like to hear much about that. But notice back in Acts chapter 11, there on 977, uh, that verse 19, notice what preempted the church from coming into being. Verse 19, the Bible says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. I've often said that if the church in America ever wants to have a good old-fashioned real revival... Maybe God should just bring us a little bit of persecution. This great persecution is part of what made this church so great. They were being persecuted and they realized they couldn't do it themselves. And they had to look up to God and say, God, we can't do this. But we know you can do it through us. It's sad that those who do the work of God will suffer persecution. But that's what the Bible says. Christians always have been persecuted. And let me tell you something. You ain't no different. You may have had it easy up till now. But all you have to do is listen to the news a little bit. And you can see that persecution is coming your way. If you're going to stand up for Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution in the days to come. I mean, when I think about our children and our grandchildren, we better be doing a mighty good work of laying a good foundation in their life because they're going to face greater tri tribulations than we ever had. In fact, did you know, this reminded me of something that Brother Tim taught the BYG one time, that 11 of the 12 apostles of Jesus Christ were killed in a violent way because of their faith. 95% of the first 12 were killed in a violent way. You see, when people really go all out for God, that's what you get, persecution. When you go all out for God, there's going to be some criticism of the way you're living. There's going to be some criticism of the way you think. There's going to be some criticism about what you stand for. There's going to be some criticism and some threatening, especially as the days grow closer just like there was in this early New Testament church. The blood of millions of Christian martyrs has been and continues to be shed to this day. And friend, I believe it's coming to our shores. Are you ready? Are you ready for this great persecution? The Bible says that 
All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In other words, if you're not being booed, you probably ain't in the game. If you're not being criticized for the way you think, the way you talk, the way you live, maybe you're living like them. They had great persecution. They had great purpose and great prayer and great power. But they also had great people. Bethel's got some great people, amen. The people in this early Christian church gave up their very life's work. You remember it. When Jesus was calling the original apostles to himself, Peter left his nets. Left his nets right there on the shore and followed Jesus. James and John left their fishing business, left it to Daddy and said, Daddy, you take care of this. And they became fishers of men. And I just shared with you how James lost his life because he did that. Giving up his very life's work. My point is this. These folks, these folks were willing to give up their worldly wealth. It said that in Acts chapter 4, I believe it is, that Barnabas sold his house and gave all the money to the apostles for the furtherance of the cause of Jesus. I don't know if I could do that or not. But they were willing to give up worldly wealth. But they were also willing to give up their very lives. That verse 19 that I shared with you about why their persecution came that arose over Stephen. You don't know that Stephen was stoned to death because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. See, this early church was willing to give up their very life for the cause of Christ. Stephen laid down his life right in the streets of Jerusalem. And as I look out, over Bethel Baptist family today, I see those who have been willing, willing to give up many, many of the same things for the cause of Jesus Christ. Bethel has got a great message. Friends, we have a great mission. And friends, we've got great members. And with all those things together, we're in the process of building one more great church. And it's exciting. But not only did this New Testament church have a great purpose with great prayer, great preaching, great power, great persecution, great people, finally, they also held to great promises. You see, these people had the promise of heaven, and so do we. These people had the promise of the Holy Spirit living within them, and so do we. These people had the promise of genuine happiness that never fades away, and so do we. 1 John 2, 25 says this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. What a promise. Thousands of promises in this Bible are for your benefit and for mine. They're there for the reading. 
And so as we consider these seven things that this great early church had and we apply them to our situation in our day and to our culture and to our society, we see that we too can be used to build one more great church for our great and marvelous God. So friend, do you want to become part of something great that God is doing here? It begins with you trusting the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His finished work to save you from the penalty of your sins. And if that happens, God promises that when you do that, you will become part of God's family. And that will never, ever be taken away. And he promises that you will spend eternity with him in a place called heaven. Can I tell you today that there is no better day than today for you to get right with God. There is no better day than today for you to get on board with what God is doing right here in our midst. There's no better day. There's no better day than for you to get on board with what God's doing right here. Right here in our midst. So may I ask you this morning, are you ready? Are you ready to join us and help us become the great church like this early New Testament church? You've got great purpose. You can be challenged with great prayer. Don't know if you're going to hear great preaching. Amen? Say amen. You're going to be in, in dwelled with great power. You will be blessed with great persecution. Did you hear what I said? You'll be blessed with great persecution. That's going to drive you to God and be closer to God than you ever have been. You're going to be in the midst of great people and be able to cling to the great promises of God. Today's decision day for you. And I pray that you'll listen to the still, soft whisper of Jesus himself. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for these early New Testament examples of how you want us to be a great church. Oh, Lord, I'm so thankful to be a part of a body of Christ like this where Jesus is the head and we follow the